Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olivest. Today we will be discussing the first work of fiction on our list of essential texts. It's a short story called The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And if you haven't read it, or if you haven't read it in a while, then I encourage you to press pause on this podcast right now and go read it really quick and then come back. Or even easier, you can listen to it. It's only about 40 minutes long and you can find it on Audible or for free on LibriVox or YouTube. It was written in 1892, so it's in the public domain now, which means it's free and it's a really, really good story. So just go read or listen to it if you haven't already and then come back. Okay, so welcome back. <laughs> Today, we are going to be discussing Charlotte Perkins Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. But first, I want to introduce my reading partner, Shannon Johnson. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Amy. <laughs> I um, will always remember the moment that you and I met Shannon. Um, it was at the welcome dinner for our master's program at Stanford. And so it was the very first time that we were getting together with our cohort that had just been admitted to the program. And I was feeling nervous and kind of intimidated and I thought I'm going to be the only mom there and I didn't think I would have anything in common with anyone and I stood up to introduce myself and I mentioned that I had four kids and I thought of course I would be the only one crazy enough to have four kids and I hear this voice from the back of the room I have four kids too <laughs> and and you said and I think we went to the same college I think Michelle had told you mm-hmm. to find me or something and yeah you said I think we went to the same college so we need to talk afterwards so we found each other um, after the meeting, and it turns out we have tons in common, um, and we speak the same language, and we've been fast friends ever since. So I'm so thankful that you're here with me, Shannon. I'm super excited to dive into this book and discuss the text with you. But first, could you tell our listeners a little bit um, about yourself, where you come from, and kind of your perspective that you bring to the text today? Sure. Um So I am descended from white Europeans who came to the United States in the 1800s. They all came because of the Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, My middle name, Olena, is actually from my great-great-great-grandmother who emigrated from Norway. And they came across the plains on the train right after the train was finished to Utah. And one of her kids was a boot boy in Brigham Young's house. But a few years after they had settled in Utah, they apostatized and left the church and went to Wisconsin. Uh, And we are not sure why, but it was probably over polygamy. Uh, So I grew up mostly in Utah. I went to BYU. I met my husband there in the Writing Fellows Program. Um, After we graduated, we uh, taught conversational English in Japan. And then he got a master's in New York City at uh, Columbia, and I worked at Columbia. And then he taught in Cairo at the American University in Cairo there, and I I studied. I took a bunch of classes there, um, and I taught conversational English there again. Uh, now I work at Stanford in uh, event planning mostly uh, at the Europe Center. Um, I'm also in the MLA program, as Amy mentioned, and I'm currently working on my master's thesis, and I'm writing on how the Mormon church's history of racial restrictions and then the revelations that ended those restrictions, um, how how we remember those in, in our culture and how... Um, how that history and culture serves the present day. 
Um, I like to view Mormon history as a case study in patriarchal American culture. Um, I also like hiking, yoga, British TV, and trashy romance novels. And I currently live in Santa Clara, California with my four daughters, aged 10 through 20, and my patient husband. Awesome. Thank you, Shannon. Um, so Shannon and I were both English majors at BYU at the same time. Crazily enough, we never, we don't remember ever meeting each other. We didn't meet until Stanford, even though we were like in all the same places at all the same time. But um, this is fun to discuss literature together. And as we were talking about how to present the book, of course, we discussed like which critical approach we wanted to assume as we introduced the text. So Shannon, why don't you start us off um, and just dive into the book and tell us how we're going to start reading it. Okay. The story. Okay. I'm really excited to talk about this story. Uh, it had been since before I gave birth myself that I had read this novel, um, probably in high school. I don't even remember reading it in college. Uh, and I re-listened to it again this week uh, in the week leading up to Halloween, which is a perfect time to read this story. Uh, this is a deceptively simple tale. Uh, it functions as both a thrilling short story, and it is quite short, um, and it's a parable on the dangers and consequences of unchecked patriarchy. It has a lot of the the tropes and themes that are common to gothic romance, um, like stories and novels from the Bronte sisters, Wuthering Heights, um, Anne Radcliffe's novels, Daphne du Maurier, um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, there are elements of atmospheric sensory description. Um, there's the creeping mounting sense of disquiet. And then there are the stock characters that are really common. There's the naive Mary Sue protagonist. Um, there's even an unsympathetic housekeeper figure. And then the insensitive or hyper-rational love interests. Um, and so this is the last warning for anyone who doesn't want spoilers, but I did want to go over the plot briefly. A young woman is brought to this grand house for the summer by her physician husband. She has mixed feelings about the house, and she even mentions how romantic it would be if the house were haunted in like the second paragraph. Uh, she has been unwell, but her husband doesn't think anything's really wrong with her. Um, and even though he thinks that she's okay, he hopes that this enforced rest at this new environment will be good for her. Uh, and it's not until about a quarter of the way into the story that we learn that she recently had a baby. And she expresses her love for the baby, but she doesn't sound attached to him and she's not engaged with his care. Her husband forbids her from writing or doing any kind of work, but she sneaks around and, and she finds solace in describing the house in a secret journal. For some reason, um, like descriptive exposition seems to her like an okay form of writing that she like justifies in her own mind that it's going to be okay. Anyway, she focuses on her immediate physical surroundings, which is this room at the top of the house and this wallpaper that like both calls to her and also repels her. Um, she begins to see a woman being held captive behind the outer pattern of the wallpaper. And she becomes more and more ill. And, and, and you realize that she's suffering from some sort of psychosis. She has hallucinations. She contemplates suicide. She, she makes like elaborate plots to free the woman who is stuck in the wallpaper. And on after they've been there for presumably like three or four months for the summertime, on the evening before their departure back to the city, she, in a frenzy, starts tearing off 
big sections of the wallpaper. And then she eventually becomes the woman who has been stuck in the wallpaper. And it's just such a great story. It's a it's a woman's genre story written by and for other women. It's not a philosophical or academic treatise. Uh, and she had a really specific audience in mind. She was writing in similar circumstances and literary connections, uh, similar to Louisa May Alcott, who 50 years earlier was writing pot boilers to support her family before she made it big with Little Women. Um, so Gilman's choice of form suits the perfect purpose of her narrative perfectly she um since her narrator is like is not even named ever and she is an unreliable narrator and she just reports the dialogue so she's able to say things that sound too bad to be true like john laughs at me and but we'll talk about that in the discussion of patriarchy and marriage for now i just want to focus on um her central image, the wallpaper itself, uh, to talk about how it functions both as a physical barrier and the focal point for the dramatic action of the story, and then how it also works as a pretty straightforward meta straightforward metaphor for the for the like oppressive nature of patriarchy. So I'm gonna read a couple quotes and notice her energetic and evocative word choice. Um, so this is the wallpaper as just a decorative element. She says it is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study. And when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide, plunge off at outrageous angles, destroy themselves in unheard of contradictions. The color is repellent, almost revolting, a smoldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. And then as she gets sicker, um, she says, behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. And it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. And then she even starts to think that she sees the figure in the wallpaper seeming to shake the pattern. And she calls it a bad dream, something that the pattern itself is something that slaps you in the face knocks you down and tramples upon you. And by the end, um, she is not seeing only the one woman in the wallpaper. She's seen perhaps many women and they are shaking the bars of the pattern. And she is all the time trying to climb through, but nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that is why it has so many heads. Um, and so then, Amy, I thought two of the quotes that you pulled from the uh, short story were so fascinating about how really her metaphor works not only within this story, but as a as a metaphor for your entire project. Yeah, I well, I just found myself relating as she talks about the um, the wallpaper and the um, the. It, it almost seems like, like you said, that that women are shaking the bars from behind it. Um, there were some quotes, maybe I'll just read the quotes from earlier, a few pages before that. Um, I'll read two quotes. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, for you can only see it in certain lights and not clearly then. 
but in the places where it isn't faded and where the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless sort of figure that seems to skulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. So there I, I thought of um, my own experience with kind of very slowly beginning to wake up to the existence of patriarchy, like Neo in the Matrix. Wait, you said you've never seen the Matrix, right? I, no, I still haven't. I need to. It's on my list. Shannon, you have, you have to see the Matrix. <laughs> it's, like, it's a foundational movie. Um, well, the character in the Matrix, just like something's wrong with his world. And the way it's described in the beginning is like just this sense, this uneasy sense that something isn't quite right. Um, and that's really, I mean, that's the experience that I see here that, that, that um, the narrator is looking at that wallpaper and like, you can't really discern, you can't see the pattern very well. Um, and so you just see this, you have this sense of like something skulking behind that, that front design. I can't tell what it is. The next quote is um, kind of a continuation of that feeling. Uh, the narrator says, I determined for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of a con conclusion. I know a little of the principle of design, and I know this thing was not arranged on any laws of radiation or alternation or repetition or symmetry or anything else that I have ever heard of. So to me, that feels like when just conversations that I had through the years about like how how has this um this system come to be and i'd try to like follow the philosophical arguments that people would make to me about why especially in the context of the the church because that was that's the context that we grew up in and and like you said it's kind of the mormon church being a case study of how patriarchy works because it's an unapologetic unapologetic patriarchy right they make no apologies for for being male-led and that it's divinely sanctioned, right? Um, and so, I mean, I still have these conversations where through the years I would kind of try to follow a line of logic and then it would dead end. Or I would think like, no, I'm right. And then someone would be like, oh, but motherhood's so important. See how it's not oppressive? And I'd be like, okay, yeah, I guess. And just that feeling of frustration of trying to follow um, aligned to its logical conclusion and getting twisted up in arguments. And, and um, I guess it was that feeling of like, um, like the narrator says, like, I determined for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of a conclusion. And I guess maybe that's what you meant by saying like, this is a, a, a metaphor almost for this breaking down patriarchy project where I was like, okay, I have had enough I'm going to start at the very beginning. I want to know where this pattern comes from. I want to know who instituted it and how and why and how it's been developing all the way through. Um, and so, yeah, that's, uh, I think, I think it can be argued that Gilman is using that wallpaper metaphor as like the patriarchy and like the bars. And I just really, really related to it. And that feeling of like, wait a second, something's off. <laughs> and then, needing to do a bunch of work to figure out um, the logic of the pattern in order to get out, right? Right, right. So that that actually bridges, unless you have something else, Shannon, that yep. bridges nicely into the next thing that we were going to talk about, actually, which is the historical context, because we didn't set that up um, at the beginning of the episode. We thought we'd talk about the story first, but um, there are a couple of 
um, notions that were present in the 19th century that any of Gilman's readers would have been familiar with at the time. And it's important to understand as we, um, because this podcast is a historical project, um, I think it's good to spend a couple minutes just talking about um, some of the constructs that existed in the 1890s. So I'll talk about just three of them really quick. Um, the first are the laws of coverture. And those we mentioned those on a different podcast briefly, but just to review, um, the laws of coverture, uh, was, it, it was a legal doctrine whereby upon marriage, a woman's legal rights and obligations were subsumed by those of her husband. Um, uh, it comes from the French term of a woman being a, a femme couvert. I don't, I do not speak French. I'm terrible, <laughs> but a, a woman who is covered, right? An unmarried woman is a femme sole, like a single woman, right? And she had the right to own property and make contracts in her own name. But once she gets married, she's covered by her husband. And it comes from, I mean, I, I just looked it up online and it, it describes it as a quote, legal fiction that a husband and wife are one person. So um, this comes from the common law of England that had been in place for several centuries. And it, uh, William Blackstone famously uh, wrote the commentaries on the laws of England. And I think it's useful to just read his description. He says, by marriage, the husband and wife are one person in law. That is the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during the marriage or at least is incorporated and consolidated into that of the husband, under whose wing, protection, and cover she performs everything, and is therefore called in our law a femme covert, is said to be under the, she is said to be under the protection and influence of her husband, and her condition during her marriage is called her coverture. For this reason, a man cannot grant anything to his wife, or enter into a covenant with her, for the grant would be to suppose her separate existence and to covenant with her would only be to covenant with himself. Um, so this attitude that the man just covers the woman and doesn't see her as an adult peer affects every aspect of society and relationships, as you can imagine. So women are really, truly, once they're married, they're regarded as perpetual children. Um, and that leads to the second point, which is the separate spheres ideologies. So the patriarchal ideology of separate spheres was based primarily on notions of biologically determined gender roles and patriarchal religious doctrine. And it claims that women should avoid the public sphere. So the domain of politics, paid work, common, commerce, and law. And women's proper sphere, according to this ideology, is the realm of domestic life. So just focused on childcare and housework and religion. Um, so the third, um, kind of aspect of life uh, that would have been familiar to 19th century readers is the notion of female hysteria. So if you think back to like the stereotype of the fainting woman in like the 18th and 19th centuries who always needs smelling salts on hand, like if there's anything mildly upsetting, she'll just like pass out um, and or, or the emotionally out of control woman. Um, John Stuart Mill talks about this in The Subjection of Women, but we didn't have time to cover it in that episode. Um, but there's this perception in the culture that women are super emotional and they freak out in hysterics all the time. So the word hysteria originates from the Greek word for uterus, which is hystera. The oldest record of hysteria 
um, dates back to 1900 BCE when Egyptians recorded behavioral abnormalities in adult women on medical papyrus. And the Egyptians attributed the behavioral disturbances to a wandering uterus. And so later they dubbed the term, or later this, the term um, hysteria became the common term for this um, emotionality in women. And to treat hysteria, I thought this was really interesting. Egyptian doctors prescribed various medications, like putting strong smelling substances on the patient's vulvas <laughs> to encourage the uterus to return to its proper position. Um, and so the I just think it's really interesting, um, this notion of the uterus causing um, big emotions. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, later in the Christian tradition, even, I mean, this lasted for thousands of years. Later in the Christian tradition, hysteria, again, associated with females only, was thought to be caused by satanic possession. And many patients of hysteria were were persecuted as witches and they went underwent interrogations and torture and even execution. So um, we could get into that and I think we won't, but it's, it is, I, I have reflected on that a lot actually over the course of my life of whether men or women are really more emotionally out of control. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, in my life, I have not seen that gendered stereotype be true at all. Um, again, it's something we could dive into, but I think we won't have time here. But um, certainly by the 20th century, you don't think of women as like fainting at, at, at the least, you know, emotional provocation, right? You don't, nobody has smelling salts in their kitchen cabinets anymore and so yeah but the pres prescriptions of like Prozac and lithium and and other psychotropics and stuff that's very gendered um you know and and I will I'll talk about this a little bit later too but um but the way in which uh doctors treat men and women who both have depression that's that's still different even to this day so yeah, that's true. So um, and and even in the you know I mean women going to work during World War II and then you know there was a lot of will they be able to handle it you know and this is in the nineteen forties yeah. and and then of course as soon as the men came home from the war uh, of course the women should go home because that's their sphere and that's the nineteen fifties right and then you have um, I mean it was just really really recently that a woman. Uh, made it into the green berets, I think it was, or something, you know, and she completed the training. But the idea of whether or not women are physically and or emotionally fit to participate in all the um, public spheres is, is still, I mean, up to the moment, I think. Yeah. So Yeah, that's definitely true. That's definitely true. And you are going to talk later in this episode about patriarchy in the medical field a little bit too, yeah. in terms of her mental illness. So yeah. Um, so we'll leave those topics at that and maybe um, talk a little bit about Gilman herself, the author. Okay. Yeah, she had a fascinating life. Uh, she was born in 1860 in Connecticut. Uh, she only had one brother. Her father left them when she was really young, and so she was very poor for most of her childhood. And since her mom wasn't able to support the family on their own, uh, they were often living with or around her father's aunts. And one of those aunts was Harriet Beecher Stowe, 
the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin. And so when I when I mentioned that she was kind of in the same literary circles and everything as Louisa May Alcott, I meant that literally. Um, wow. Yeah. And and she also inherited some of the the problems of of with white feminism, right? That that she wasn't as as racially sensitive or as we could wish now. Um, anyway, uh, her mother forbade her from making strong friendships and from reading fiction. And I don't know if that's because she wanted her to have a strong character and and not be hurt by people as as her mom had been by her father. Um, anyway, she wrote in her autobiography that. Her mother showed affection only when she thought Charlotte was asleep. So, and then even though her father had abandoned them, uh, years later he contacted her with a list of books that he thought that she should read. And so, and then when she was 18, she enrolled at the Rhode Island School of Design, and her father helped her monetarily. So, um, at the Rhode Island School of Design, she worked as a painter of trade cards. Uh, like a modern uh, business card, and as a tutor. In 1884, so she would have been 24 years old, she married the artist Charles Stetson. Uh, initially, she declined his proposal because she thought it wasn't right for her, but they, but then she, I don't know what kind of pressure she had, um, but they got married. And it was within a year that she had her only child, Catherine Beecher Stetson. Uh, and then Charlotte experienced a very serious um illness with postpartum depression. And she was actually treated by the foremost famous doctor who was treating what was then called neurasthenia in both men and women, um, also known as hysteria in women, but it also had this other term by this point. And his name was Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell. And his advice to her at this time, this was in the late 1880s, he said, live as domestic a life as possible. Have your child with you all the time. Lie down an hour after each meal. Have but two hours intellectual life a day. And never touch pen, brush, or pencil as long as you live. It was interesting because when I read that, I think two hours intellectual life, that actually kind of sounds pretty sufficient to me. I get kind of tired after <laughs> if I'm if I'm studying or something, I, you know, I'm ready for a, I'm ready for a break after two hours. But um and lying down for an hour after each meal doesn't sound so terrible. I don't know. But um, <laughs> but that she should never try to write or paint or anything as long for the rest of her life. And remember, oh. she's in her she's in her 20s at this point. So um, after a while, they moved to South, Southern California. And so that would have been a big change for her from the East Coast to the West Coast. And they lived with a friend, Grace Ellery Channing, who was actually the the granddaughter of William Ellery Channing, the, the founder and famous pastor of the Unitarian Church in the United States. Uh, and a few years later, they separated uh, Charlotte and her husband. And interesting, in a weird, interesting turn of events, um, Charlotte's first husband married that friend, Grace Ellery Channing, after their divorce was official. Um, so we don't know if there was an affair, but they were very amicable. Uh, and at this time, Charlotte was becoming really active in feminist and reform organizations. And one of them I thought was really fascinating was called the Nationalist Club. And it's not what we think of as nationalism nowadays, but it was a, an organization dedicated to ending capitalism's greed and ending distinctions between the classes while promoting a peaceful, ethical, and truly progressive human race. 
Um, and so this is at the same time of period as like uh, the muckrakers and and mm. where journalism was really coming into its um, fruition as like, you know, be, doing investigations and everything. Anyway, she published poetry. She she made a living for herself on the lecture circuit. She wrote essays. And then it was in 1890 that she wrote the yellow wallpaper. She actually gave it to her friend, William Dean Howells, who was a famous man of letters. And he sent it to the Atlantic Monthly, but the editor there thought it would make miser- readers as miserable as the story made himself. And so it wasn't until a couple of years later that it was published in the New England magazine. Now, this is the really interesting part about her, her former husband. She actually sent her daughter to live with the, the former husband and his second wife, who was her friend. And she wrote that she was happy for the couple uh, and said that Catherine, that's her daughter, Catherine's second mother was fully as good as the first and perhaps better in some ways. And she also, um, so this would be a really uh, odd for this time of, uh, this time in history for a child to be with the father instead of the mother, except for, I guess, in the laws of curvature, you would often, you would lose custody of your children. I don't know. That's actually complicated. But anyway, um, hmm. she said that her ex-husband had a right to some of Catherine's society and that Catherine had the right to know and love her father. So um, obviously she was affected by her own father having left and wanted to make sure that her daughter had a really good relationship with her father. Um, So then after Charlotte's mother died, she moved back from California back east and she reconnected with the first cousin and she described him as being pleasurable. And they were married in 1900 and they didn't, she didn't have any other children, but they were apparently really happy. And she would go away on the lecture circuit and they would write letters to each other that are, you know, really fun, emotionally connected letters. Uh, in 1915, she wrote this feminist utopian novel called Herland, and I read some of some parts of it, and it and it sounds a lot like the island of Themyscira in in Wonder Woman, where um, like it's it's all women and they they reproduce asexually, and and it's this wonderful thing. Um, and it, anyway, uh, in 1932, uh, she was diagnosed with incurable breast cancer and she had been an advocate for euthanasia for the terminally ill. And so she took an overdose of chloroform a few years later. And in both her autobiography and her suicide note, she wrote that she chose chloroform over cancer. And then her death was pretty quick and peaceful. And I, I just think it's so significant that at the end of her life, she was able to take control of both her health and her life, actually, and and choose how to how to finish her life. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's powerful. That shows a lot about her sense of autonomy, right, and her personal voice and trusting her own personal convictions. That's really encouraging that she was able to uh, to find that at that time, right? In that environment. Yeah. Well, and I'm struck by her entire biography is that she sounds like someone who could have lived nowadays, right? Someone who could have written and become an activist and gotten divorced and had a good relationship with her ex-husband. And um, she also, I I didn't include this part, but she actually moved to live closer to her daughter in the years um, right before her death also. So she was, she obviously Mm -hmm. wasn't, even though she had sent her daughter to live with her ex-husband, she wasn't estranged from her that I know of. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know. She just, her life, like her story seemed to be timeless to me, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. And yeah, and I agree that her story too, rereading it now, if you, if I hadn't known it had been published in 1892, I would never have thought that that's when this story was happening. I mean, I, I would know it was earlier based on the content, but the, um, the writing itself feels like you said, very current and extremely relatable and modern. So, um, thanks Shannon for that bio. That was, yeah, fascinating. Um, and so now we're going to highlight three of the main themes that we identified within the short story. Um, I'm going to start with patriarchy in marriage, and then Shannon, uh, you'll do patriarchy within the medical field at the time, and then um, I'll talk about women writing, and then we'll wrap up. So first, patriarchy in marriage, as described in the yellow wallpaper. So um one of the main features in the narrator's marriage with her husband, John, who, like you said, is also her physician. So he's her, he has like that dual role of her husband and her doctor. Um, and one of the main features in that relationship is that he does make her feel like she's crazy. So um, I just wanted to start with the definition of the term gaslighting. It's a term that people use a lot, but some listeners might not know where that term comes from. So Gaslighting is from a 1938 stage play by Patrick Hamilton called Gaslight. And this play is about an abusive husband who attempts to convince his wife and convince others in their life that the wife is insane. And he does this by manipulating small elements of their environment and then insisting that she's the one who's mistaken and remembering things incorrectly or that she's delusional when she points out that things are changing. And so the play's title alludes to how this abusive husband slowly dims the gas lights in their home and then pretends that nothing's changed in, in a, like a, a purposeful effort to make his wife doubt her own perceptions. And the wife repeatedly asks her husband to confirm her perceptions about the dimming lights and and she hears noises and voices and stuff. Um, and he just keeps insisting that the lights are the same and instead it's she who is going insane. So that's where the term gaslighting comes from. Um, manipulating someone to make them think that the problem is them or that they are crazy when actually they are not the problem and they're not crazy. So I would say that this is one of the themes in the story um, because the narrator is constantly being told that she's wrong, not just about the wallpaper, but just about her own feelings and her own inclinations and um, her, for example, wanting to go outside and go for a walk, saying like, no, 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 that's not what you need. And she wants to write, no, 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 that's going to be bad for you. She's just not trusted. And so she starts to distrust herself and and think that she's she's crazy, which, which interestingly leads to um, her... her um, additional deterioration um, because she isn't able to trust herself. So in addition to the theme of gaslighting, I wanted to share just some excerpts to show how Gilman depicts this marriage. And again, like you said, um, the whole story is told from the point of view of the narrator, and she's not necessarily a reliable narrator, but it's a first person um, perspective. So the first quote is on the very first page, and the, the woman says, John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. Um, so just a very telling 
um, observation that I think just indicates maybe how a woman would perceive marriage in general in the late 1800s. She then says, on the second page, she says, I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it is due to this nervous condition. But John says, if I feel so angry, I shall neglect proper self-control. So I take pains to control myself, before him at least, and that makes me very tired. She then says, I'm just going to read a few of these quotes because they kind of speak for themselves and create um, overall the sense of what the relationship is like. Another quote is, he's very careful and loving and hardly lets me stir without special direction. He takes all care from me, and so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. Um, okay, and then one last one, and then I'll, I'll talk about it a bit. The last one is, Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real earnest, reasonable talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me go and make a visit to Cousin Henry and Julia, but he said I wasn't able to go, nor able to stand it after I got there. And I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I had finished. So I, I wanted to just highlight a couple of things from there. Just there are those two abusive tactics um, where the person who has power, whether it's a husband or a father or an authoritarian leader in, in even of a country, knows that the dependent party are in their debt. And so they leverage that and they use it to manipulate. So um, where she says um, that she feels ungrateful, he takes all care for me. And so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. I just, I, I think that this is um, a really common dynamic in patriarchal relationships, especially when the man inhabits the, the public sphere. And so he's the breadwinner that it puts it just by virtue of that alone, it puts um, the man in the position of the provider. And so everybody else in the family is dependent upon them. And so it just is really a recipe for manipulating gratitude. You know what I mean? And saying like, how dare you question me after everything I've done for you? And um, that just really struck a chord with me as being something that's very familiar that I've witnessed in lots of relationships. And, and another thing is that last quote where she said, like, oh, I didn't make a very good case for myself because I was crying before I had finished. And just that, that sense of frustration and the futility of her trying to argue and, and trying to represent her own point of view. And, and in that, that um, desperation that she starts crying in this relationship, obviously that's looked down on and that display of, again, it's like feminine emotionality is then anything she has to stay, say is just discounted by saying, oh, you're so emotional and placing the fault on this woman who's actually not being treated fairly. And, um, and the heartbreaking thing to me is that she describes herself that way, like, oh, I'm so emotional, what's wrong with me? So she's, she's very much internalized that view of herself. Um, one more thing that I want to share on this is um, there are a bunch of quotes where the narrator describes her husband as being really tender with her. 
that John um, gathers her up in his arms and carries her upstairs and he very gently lays her on the bed and sits by her and calls her his darling and and he says you must you have to take care of yourself and and be well and um he calls her little girl <laughs> which is of course patronizing but the sense that I got um from those parts too and I was actually really glad that Gilman included them because I think his character would have been too flat if he had just been like this domineering um abusive husband it really, to me, highlighted the reality that relationships are complicated. And it made me think of Thomas Paine's quote, um, where he said, if we take a survey of ages and of countries, we shall find the women, almost without exception, at all times and in all places, adored and oppressed. And I think that's true on a macro level. And I think that's true in relationships as well. People, I think, sometimes say like, oh, that's not abusive because he loves me right? And he does. And I get the sense that John in this story actually really did care about his wife and was perhaps doing the best he knew how to do, um, even though it was pretty crappy and, and, and actually really damaging to his wife. He, there was an aspect of this relationship where he was doing all he knew how and maybe what he had been taught in medical school and what had been modeled for him by his parents. And so I just wanted to mention that as well. Um, but it's very rare to find like a truly 100% misogynistic like man who actually really truly loathes his wife. <laughs> um, it's more common that he actually really does love his wife, but is just extremely misguided and does a lot of abusive things, but perhaps not on purpose, which isn't to excuse it, but just to understand it better. It's all tangled up together and it's really hard to tease out those elements. Anyway, those were my thoughts on um, the patriarch aspects of their marriage did you have anything that you wanted to bring out from there Shannon well I, I think that's um did you I'm sorry did you read the part where he said uh he said I was his darling and his comfort and all he had and that I must take care I of myself for his sake and keep well yeah. um to me that is just a, exactly what you were just talking about is the fact that that he he does try to manipulate her by telling her how much she means to him and, and that, that she has to take care of herself for his sake. And, and, and he just, it's just not a partnership. Their relationship mm. is so unequal in power. And, and as you said, part of that is the fact that he's the breadwinner. He's the man. Um, there were, when I was reading some criticism of the story and stuff, there are some scholars who think that since he's gone so often, maybe he's having an affair. Maybe he is just really busy being out on medical calls. Um, but he's often out all night. Um, mm -hmm. And that she has to, that she puts on a show for him. She's probably dressing for dinner or whatever they would do at this time period. And just that they are not equals. And, and no matter how much he loves her, it just reads everything he says to her sounds like a paternal relationship or a fatherly relationship. It does not sound like, like two equals talking. So. Absolutely. And it, and it wouldn't have been right at all. They wouldn't have, neither one of them would have had the expectation, to your point, I'm agreeing with you, neither one of them would have come into the marriage having the expectation of being well, peers and equal. Yeah, I mean, I wonder about that because um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman obviously was an educated woman who had gone to college. And, and then this story, it, it's, you know, it's, you can't, it's tricky to say what's autobiographical, although it is deeply autobiographical. And we'll talk about that at the end. Um, but, um, 
But she does definitely paint her narrator, I think, as more naive and more unself-aware, more less self-conscious than she was herself. So obviously she is distancing herself. Um, The the narrator seems so young and so so different from Charlotte Perkins Gilman herself, who who I think did see herself as an equal in marriage. And maybe that's why she got divorced the first time. Right. And then her second marriage was so much happier um, because she was older and she was making her own money. And I don't know. So. Yeah. No. Yeah, I agree. And so maybe Gilman is writing maybe the way we'll talk about Virginia Woolf a little bit, you know, how some of Virginia Woolf's mother characters, like Mrs. Ramsey and stuff, are based on Virginia Woolf's own mother, mm-hmm. like her own parents' relationships. And so maybe, I, yeah, that's true that Gilman, this this doesn't represent how Gilman was, this, this character in the yellow wallpaper, but perhaps she knew enough women, maybe her friends, maybe her own mother, that she was writing this character more based on that. Yeah, who knows? But that's a really great point. I'm glad you actually brought that quote back out because I hadn't read it, that that he calls her his darling, but then that that next part is really important, that she's also his comfort, all he had, and that she needed to take care of herself for his sake. So I'm glad you brought that out, Shannon. That's great. Yeah. Um, should we go on to the next part? Yeah, I'm... Um... I was glad that you brought up the scientific understanding of hysteria, like historically. Uh, I'm sure I've studied that before, but it sounded new to me again. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, the the problem of doctors not listening to women's health concerns is is completely in the present today, Um, and especially for non-white women. Um, So annually in the United States, 700 women die and 50,000 experience severe complications of childbirth in the United States uh, alone. And and then the numbers of that, we were in that women's international health course together and the numbers of that. Actually, the the U.S. does pretty poorly when it comes to maternity among um, rich nations, um, but women's health in general, like with fistulas and just everything is is pretty poor around the world. Um, So in the United States, according to the CDC, black women die at three to four times the rate of white women. And there are a whole host of factors um, associated with that. But I just wanted to mention Serena Williams uh, because she gave birth by C-section in 2017. And at that point, she was, you know, she was in her 30s. I think she was maybe 36 or so. Um, Or maybe when she gave birth, she was a little bit younger. But anyway, well into her 30s. And she had already had some experience with blood clots. And so she knew in her own body and her own life how blood clots are identified, diagnosed, and how they're treated. So after she gave birth, she was having trouble breathing and she assumed she was having another pulmonary embolism. And she alerted a nurse to what she was feeling and she asked for a CT scan and a blood thinner. But the nurse suggested that like the pain medication she was on was leaving her confused. Uh, but Serena Williams insisted. And but still, instead of um, taking a CT scan, they did an ultrasound of her legs. And um she apparently she told the doctor, I was like a Doppler, which is the machine they used to do the ultrasound. I told you I need a CT scan and a heparin drip, which heparin's the blood thinner. Um, and so 
the ultrasound didn't find anything in her legs. So then they finally gave her a CT scan and it, which showed several small blood clots in her lungs. And so they, and they admit immediately put her on the heparin drip. Um, she later, uh, because of the coughing with the blood clots in her lungs, she coughed so much that her C-section, uh, sutures opened up and she had to go back into surgery. Um, she was actually bedridden for six weeks after giving birth. And, and this is a woman who was in, is still in peak physical condition, right? With every monetary advantage, you know, she had access to the best hospitals, the best doctors. So any of the other mitigating factors that might influence, you know, poor health outcomes for black women, none of those would apply to Serena Williams. Like obviously she has immense privilege and immense physical fitness and everything. And still the doctors would not listen to her. So, um, and I think this is, uh, I want to go back, though, to something that Gilman would have been familiar with, uh, and that's the case of Elizabeth Packard. In 1860, so the same the year of Gilman's birth, there was this woman called Elizabeth Packard, and her husband was a minister. And I can't remember if he was I can't remember which denomination he was, but his wife uh, was exploring spiritual traditions. Oh, so he was a Presbyterian, sorry. And she was exploring spiritual traditions outside Presbyterianism. And so he had her hospitalized. Um, and the diagnosis that he, her husband had her hospitalized under was having an unclean spirit and moral insanity. And so she was held involuntarily in the hospital for three years. Um, and that's just on her husband. And there was this and and uh, this is this needs to go in the the show notes for this episode. I have a link to the National Institutes of Health has an article on this in the National Library of Medicine actually about her, um, because there was this whole system of private insane asylums and and just a lot of involuntary called civil commitments of people who are especially women. Anyway, so after three years of being hospitalized and probably being medicated up the wazoo. <laughs> she was declared sane. And then she, I'm sorry, because I realized I probably shouldn't swear on this podcast. So you I can. Oh, well, I can. What you, okay. What you said is yeah, perfectly appropriate. So yeah. um, then when she was released, she had lost custody of her children. She'd lost ownership of her property. and But she actually filed a lawsuit for wrongful confinement and she won. So that's why this is such a famous case wow. because she won. And then she became an activist and she devoted the rest of her life to promoting change in the civil commitment laws. Uh, and so this, like I said, this would have been something that was, you know, known about in the culture. And I think with um, Charlotte Perkins Gilman's interest in this kind of uh, injustice, I think she would have been aware of that. So now the yellow wallpaper itself is so emblematic of medical misogyny that it's also featured in this National Library of Medicine. So we'll put a link to that also in the show notes. And it's like both of these are like cautionary tales, I think, for, you know, doctors coming of age. And one of the really interesting things to me is that nowadays there are more women in most med schools. I think women make up like close to 60% of, of medical students. Yeah. And so, and that hopefully that'll help with things. Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, so in the story though, I think one of the biggest ironies is that even though the husband, John doesn't think she's sick and she mentions this on the very first page, she says, if a physician of high standing 
and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there is really nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? So, but even though he doesn't think she's sick, he still completely uh, over-treats her with phosphates and phosphites. He tries to control her diet, even her air intake. You know, he says that it's okay. You can breathe. You can breathe as much air as you want to. You need to kind of work on your diet, but the air's fine. Um, he tries to control her exercise. He tries to control what she thinks about. Um, he moves her physically from the city to this this you know rural estate. Um, upends her entire routine just after she's given birth. Um, and he's just trying to control everything. And he with her trying to control her mental thought processes, he tells her not to let any silly fancies run away with her. And he says that she must use her will and her self-control. Um, and, and then this is, I just have to read this part where um, even though she, she tells him that she's getting worse, but he responds, you really are better, dear, whether you can see it or not. I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and color. Your appetite is better. I feel really much easier about you. And she responds, I don't weigh a bit more, nor as much. And my appetite may be better in the evening when you are here, but it is worse in the morning when you are away. And his response is, bless her little heart, said he with a big hug. She shall be as sick as she pleases. And there he's not even talking about her in the second person. He's not even responding to her. He's literally moved to talking to her in the third person. You know, besides wow, the yeah. patronizing language, it's, it's, it's gone from second person to third person. So there's also this like, and maybe this is just appropriate to the time period, but this like fear and ignorance about mental illness in general. Um, there's He has this feeling that even acknowledging the problem would make it worse. Uh, and so he says, at one point, he says, my darling, I beg of you for my sake and for our child's sake, well, as well as for your own, that you will never for one instant let that idea enter your mind. There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temper like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? And when I was reading this quote out of context the other day, I was like, did she tell him that she was suicidal? And that's the idea that's so dangerous and so fascinating. So I had to go back to the original text and I was like, no, he's just worried. She just says that she's disturbed in her mind, that that she feels mentally unwell. unwell. And that is the dangerous idea. Even the idea. And the, the, the ironic thing, of course, is that postpartum and clinical depression have a chemical physical component, right? If you're not uptaking your serotonin, whatever it is. I'm not an expert on, on these things, but, but like there is a physical chemical, uh, component. Um, but the fact that, that they're making such a differentiation for it all the while he is treating her physically, it's just, it's just a big, huge mess. Um, and then that leads to the other great irony is that she has undergone childbirth, right? Which we now know involves massive amounts of hormones, um, even like I remember four months after giving birth each time, I would lose big, huge clumps of hair. Right. And I was always, yeah, I, me too. I remember there were times when I was like, do I need to get a wig? It would get so bad. Right. <laughs> and it's not something anyone ever talks about and it, it's not painful or anything, but 
Um, and you know that like when you are growing the baby, uh, like you're losing calcium stores from your bones and from your teeth to support the fetal growth. And, and then I read somewhere that we don't actually lose brain cells during pregnancy, but like the individual brain cells can shrink a little bit shrink, and yeah. they'll go back to their normal size later. But my point is like, she actually had gone through this huge physical thing, even like the energy involved in like increasing your blood volume during pregnancy and, and just everything to support this baby. And, but the fact that she's given birth, they're like, um, well that they don't even ever mention that as a pot as being possibly related to what she's experiencing now. They're like, I mean, birth and hysteria, they're both female things, but like, I don't know this female, like she's had both, but like, how could they possibly be connected or related to each other? Um, the, the author, the narrator even says, John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer and that satisfies him. And it's like, did you forget your wife just gave birth? Like what the, the idea to me isn't like, it's not that we shouldn't consider gender when we talk about health, but that like we need to try in some way to consider it intelligently and say, mm -hmm. yes, this woman is suffering from this postpartum depression or this neurasthenia or whatever, but also she just gave birth. Possibly they're kind of, I don't know. Um, so that leads me to something I found super fascinating about this uh, Dr. Silas Weir Mitchell. Um, the American Psychological Association, the APA, actually has like this time capsule feature on their website. And so we need to put a link to that in the show notes also. But um, again, another cautionary tale. And so he was a doctor. He he what his patients included Charlotte Perkins Gilman, but also Walt Whitman and Theodore Roosevelt. And Oh. Yeah. So he didn't just treat women. No. He was a renowned doctor for okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's why he called it that's why they were calling it neurasthenia because it could affect both, right? Although in women it. it manifested okay. as hysteria, I guess. But in both cases, okay. um, they would say men and women needed to refrain or take a break from brain work, right? Um, but then his, so that's what the, the negative prescription, the positive prescription was highly gendered. Men with this nervous disposition were given what was called the West cure. They would go West. So if you think of Teddy Roosevelt, the rough writer, he was actually thought of as kind of effeminate in his younger age and younger years. And he was, he wasn't as muscly and, and strong as he, he later was thought of. He was sent West to engage in prolonged periods of cattle roping, hunting, rough riding, and male bonding. And then, whereas uh, we know what the women who were uh, prescribed the rest cure, they were told to rest, right? And they were told to get a little fresh air, but not too much. Get a little exercise, but not too much. Um, but then the huge difference that the really big difference besides the physical difference is that the men were encouraged to write or paint or otherwise process their experiences out West. And so like you have Walt Whitman's poetry, um, one of his specimens poems, I think comes from this period where he took the West cure. Um, and then if, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Virginian by Owen Wister. I've never read it, but I, mm -mm. it's a novel um, from like 1902 or something. And he wrote that about his experiences out West. And then Thomas Eakins, wow. the painter, he, 
some of his best paintings came out of his West Cure. So that's what the men were encouraged to do. Whereas the women, on the other hand, um, I already read to you the the quote about what um, that she should never pick up pen, pencil, or paintbrush. I think right. again, but in the not in the short story, the yellow wallpaper, uh, she is absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. So at least that's different than ever again in your life. Uh, here it's until he's well again. But to me, this just this whole idea of the rest cure and the whole idea of um, men and women having separate spheres, like the women's sphere is the home, you stay in the home and that's where you get healthy. The man's sphere is the political world, but if the political world's getting too much, then you can go out west and have that physical landscape as your sphere. Um, but it's as if like, if Serena Williams doctors had come to her and looked at these blood clots uh, and her C-section scar opening right after birth because of the coughing from blood clots in her lungs. And if they'd said, well, see, obviously tennis is only for men, you know, because totally. like, oh like, my gosh. It, like that to me wow. is the conclusion they're coming to is that, yeah. um, because obviously both men and women can have blood clots and obviously she'd had blood clots before birth, but these blood clots probably were a result of pregnancy and childbirth. So, um, mm -hmm. I don't know. And I don't want to emphasize biology too important because of course, uh, there are transgender sisters and brothers, like not all women have uteruses, not all people with uteruses are women, all that kind of stuff. Um, so this is, none of this is to say that biology is all important or not important. It's just that we need to be, we need to be more intelligent about how we think of biology, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. so, and then, um, uh, to that point, Shannon, I do want to um, to just insert here for listeners too that in our discussion of men and women, it's it is almost always um, assumed cisgender, assumed heterosexuality, and that's a function of kind of being immersed in the text where we are and on the historical timeline. And so, as the podcast progresses and we get further into the twentieth century we're going to be then reading authors who are talking about things for the first time. And so, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, so we do kind of go on a deep dive and we start to think we're thinking about these texts in the ways that the authors were thinking of, about them and thinking about life in the ways that the author, these authors were thinking about life. And so it's good for us to like pop our heads out of that, <laughs> that deep dive and to, be sensitive and to and to also have just a broader view of the human experience. Um, the view of the human experience in 1892 was much more narrow than it is now. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, this is so fascinating. Keep going. Okay. <laughs> the, well, the West Cure versus Rest Cure is just crazy to me. Just in the assumption of the capacity of men to grow and strengthen themselves and that the the prescription for women is like, oh, well, you don't have the capacity. I mean, that's what's implied, right? Is that women didn't have the capacity right. to get stronger well, and strengthen themselves. And that um, men can need to expand their horizons, but the women need to yes. circumspect. They need to, they need to like, yeah. they're, they just need to be smaller and smaller. Their circle needs to be smaller. Um, so where the men are off male bonding with strangers in the American West, um, the narrator of this story is um, denied the company of close friends, 
when I get really well, John says we will ask Cousin Henry and Julia down for a long visit, but he says he would as soon put fireworks in my pillowcase as to let me have those stimulating people about now. Um, And it's not to say like if if she had been given the West cure, that obviously wouldn't have solved her postpartum depression because as we've already said, it was rooted in a chemical imbalance and and all the hormones and the physical up changes of childbirth. But um, the physician who in this case, as we said, is her husband, he could have tried, I think, better to do no harm by by listening to her and by treating her as an equal and and all the things that she starts to say she thinks would make her feel better she doesn't want to go off to the west she doesn't say she wants to do what the men are doing she wants to write she wants to visit with her friends she wants to do stuff that like um in some ways is still in the domestic sphere she's not even asking for things crazily outside of what he would have thought of as her domestic sphere physically mentally yes like she wants to get out of the domestic sphere domestic sphere mentally and so that made me think of emily dickinson uh because she was writing around the same time period a little bit earlier right she's more of the 1850s 1860s time period along with walt whitman and and people like that but um she was a famous recluse apparently she didn't go farther than her garden door after after she was 40 or something and she wore white and stuff. I actually did my, my thesis Mm -hmm. at BYU on Emily Dickinson, but it's been way too long since I've immersed myself Mm. in her, but I love her poetry. And, um, so she kind of inhabited that really confined domestic sphere, but she had this vast and extensive correspondence with friends all over the world and especially around New England and and super brilliant people to talk with and her sister-in-law. And she was sharing her poetry with them. She was getting feedback on her poetry. She was sharing ideas. I mean, she was reading as many novels and books as she wanted to. She had access to an intellectual life that was way beyond the domestic sphere. And so because she had that access, um, I think that it made her 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 literal physical domestic sphere um, bearable, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So yeah. the separate yeah. spheres are both right, literal and metaphorical. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That's so interesting. I think one of the takeaways that that I'm um, kind of mulling over as you just shared all of those things is uh yeah, just the importance of listening because that um, that would have solved, or if if not solved, at least ameliorated the situation with Serena Williams, like you said, who was saying like, "I know my own body, I know my own medical history. Listen to me, right?" And um, and even what how you brought up um, the experience of of um, gender nonconforming or um, LGBTQ plus. Um, people too. I mean, as doctors, as family members, as friends approach, whoever it is, as we're trying to figure out like what's biology, what is psychology. And I think the first step is always to just listen to the person, listen to what they are telling you about their experience and let that guide the approach. And that's what I think Gilman is really writing about and what what, um, you're describing is just this very patriarchal, male-driven prescription of like, because you are this, we're going to do this for you and not listening 
to the person and what they're saying about what their gut is telling them about what they need, um, which is always the right, at least the right place to start in, in, in um, understanding yeah, what the person's experiencing so that we so that we can be supportive and helpful, whether we're doctors or yeah, it's or friends. I think there was an article in the New York Times uh, just like a couple of days ago about how women doctors spend more time with patients than male doctors do. Um, but mm. this, so that's good because obviously they're spending more time listening too, probably. Um, but it was also the the article said that the the flip side or the the bad side to that was that it, they make a lot less, they make less money because they have fewer patients because they spend more time sure. with each of the patients. And so it's, if it's about billable hours and all this kind of stuff. So we could talk about healthcare forever probably, but, um, yeah. just the idea that, um, maybe it does help. We need doctors who have reflected on, on these and are aware of these kind of pitfalls and who mm -hmm. will just listen. Yeah. Yeah. To start. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks, Shannon. It's awesome. Okay, our last point will be brief. Um, but I do still want to mention it because it's, uh, we've, we've kind of talked about it a little bit, we've touched on it a bit. But the act of women writing. Um, I was thinking about the episode a, a few episodes ago, we read the creation of feminist consciousness um, by Gerda Lerner. And um, that book is fabulous if you haven't read it it's so great and it highlights um kind of the first instances of women kind of writing their way out of um their own mental constructs of of their own absorbed inferior feelings of inferiority and um we talked about Rosvita of Gandersheim and Christine de Pizan and and then we have episodes on de Gouge and Wollstonecraft and Sarah Grimke. We just see this tradition of women um, writing to help themselves identify what's wrong with their world and to make sense of it. Um, or if we go back to that analogy of like trying to trace the, these weird lines in the wallpaper to try to think ourselves out of it. Um, that's the role that writing, one role that writing has always played in my life is I, I can't, I think so much better with a pen or a keyboard, um, forcing myself to put words to ideas helps me see them through to, again, to their, like their logical conclusion and, and helps me see where I'm not thinking clearly. And it's also therapeutic and necessary for, for mental health, um, to just get our feelings out and, um, to, to process our emotions. So, um, in this story in particular, you just look at the main character and feel so frustrated that the men in her life don't trust her intuition and wisdom that writing will actually make her feel better. And it's also so sad to me to see how, as you like look at the story from beginning to end, to see how the writing is helping her at first. But then as people discourage her from writing and her depression is growing worse and worse, she slowly loses the will to write. So I'm just going to trace this um, process through a couple of quotes. So on page one, the narrator is talking about how she feels really bad about doubting John's wisdom. And she says, quote, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind. So like we talked about before, she can't, she's like pretending for John. She's, she has to, for his sake, like he says, for the kid, for the baby's sake, for his sake, she has to pretend that everything's okay. Um, so it's a great relief to her mind to be able to express what's really going on. 
onto paper where nobody's going to see it. Um, and then on page two, she says, already she's experiencing this like, oh, this is just so hard. Um, she says, I did write for a while in spite of them, meaning John and um, the other characters in the story. But it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it or else meet with heavy opposition. Then she says, there comes John and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. Um, and this, Shannon, you and I were talking about this and you're like, oh, it's like the Pride and Prejudice movie where the <laughs> women are like, um, don't they, they have like needlepoint and maybe they're writing and you think of um, Jane Austen with her writing desk that sometimes she would just like slam it shut and, and hide when people would come over to the house to see that she's been writing and, and these characters in Pride and Prejudice just really quickly shove their stuff into like nooks and crannies or under the couch, lest anybody think that they had been doing anything productive <laughs> or, or thinking. So uh, she, you get this sense from the narrator too, that she has to hide her pen and paper whenever John comes home. Um, and then just two more quotes, you can see like the progression of how being told that she shouldn't be writing and having to hide it from people is so exhausting, but then it leads her to actually be like, you know what, it's not even worth it. So she says, I think sometimes that if I were only well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me. But I find I get pretty tired when I try. And again, she's getting tired when she tries because she has so much opposition working against her. It's not, the, it's not the act of writing that's tiring her out. It's the having to hide it and having to pretend and maybe probably feeling guilty that she's doing it. So sadly, um, several pages later, she says, she, she writes these very short sentences. She writes, I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it is absurd. But I must say what I feel and think in some way, it is such a relief. But the effort is getting to be greater than the relief. And that's, I think, the last thing she even says about writing. And you get, I mean, the, the sense that the, she then gives up. She then just gives up and doesn't write anymore. Um, I think also, so, sorry, I think also there kind of not, it's, it's after that point. There's only like two more pages or so, I think. But it starts to, or maybe, I don't know, uh, but it almost becomes more of a stream of consciousness. Whereas before she mm -hmm. seems, before she seems conscious of her reader and that like an interlocutor, she's like, I, I'm, I'm writing this stuff for you. And she just seems more like, like it's all, it's more meta or she's able to step outside of it and have a better perspective of everything. But then mm -hmm. after this point, she just starts to get subsumed into um, the stream of consciousness about the wallpaper and the woman. And then it, it's, she just becomes one with first the narrative and then one with the woman in the wallpaper. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's because mm -hmm. she's lost her identity as the writer, quote unquote. And now she's become, she goes from being an objective observer to what's going on around the house to becoming the subject of it herself, I think. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Great point. Great point. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll continue to see this. This will this will come up in um, subsequent episodes, um, and specifically, I'm thinking of our episodes on Virginia Woolf, which are coming up soon. We'll talk about even the aspect of mental illness and the the role that writing plays, especially for women, um, when we talk about Virginia Woolf in a little while. So, for now, um, that brings us to the end of our discussion. This was. Just fantastic, Shannon. Thank you so much for being here. And did you 
have like any takeaways or just nuggets of wisdom that you that you'll take away from? Well, this? I wanted to end with a quote. Uh, Gilman was asked over and over why she wrote the yellow wallpaper. So she actually wrote an, a document called Why I Wrote the Yellow Wallpaper. And that's available right. at the National Library of Medicine exhibit, too. Uh, and that's all digitized with um, the original transcripts of like the magazine publication and pictures of her and stuff. So it's really, really well worth your time. But she said that after barely surviving the rest cure, she cast the noted specialist advice to the winds and went to work. The normal life of every human being, work, in which is joy and growth and service, without which one is a pauper and a parasite ultimately recovering some measure of power. And I, I just want to point out that when she's glorifying work, she's not intending women or anyone to be like cogs in the capitalist machine because remember she was she was against uh, against some of the egregiousness uh, of capitalism and stuff, remember from her time in the Nationalist Club. But but she's talking about work as in like mental labor or as in, right. in work that fulfills one, right? So in that sense, uh, not as laboring, I guess. Uh, she goes on, the little book, the L.Y. Piper, has, to my knowledge, saved one woman from a similar fate, so terrifying her family that they let her out into normal activity and she recovered. And even Dr. Mitchell later wrote her something or, or she heard through mutual friends or something that he had changed his his treatment habits after reading the Yellow Wallpaper. And so she finishes with uh, her book was not intended to drive people crazy, but to save people from being driven crazy. And it worked. Amazing. Yeah, I bet the Atlantic Monthly regretted <laughs> rejecting her her submission, right? Because he said it it made me miserable. It will make readers miserable. And to some extent, like that's the point is you have to understand the misery and yeah. where it comes from. It, it, but yeah. I, I don't know. I just want to say one more time that like uh, – you can just read it as a fun gothic horror story yeah. for Halloween. You know, True. it, it yeah. really does work on that level. It, um, it, it, it's. I guess my point is, I don't want people to think it's a downer or it's like, and and it is like that. You think about it, and it is really depressing and sad, but it is also like a thriller. It really is truly. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so. I agree. Super enjoyable to read. I. And I had, I, I do remember actually reading this story, I think first semester of, of freshman year in college in an English class, um, in the, the Norton anthology, I'm pretty hmm. sure it's in the Norton anthology of um, literature. And I do remember reading it. And I read it completely, I think just my 18 year old mind, I did not have enough life experience <laughs> yet. But I totally just remember reading it as like a creepy story. And it was super enjoyable just on that level, too. So you're right. Um, I just want to say, I think the one takeaway, or rather, like, I guess one thing that I want to mention at the end is, um, as we talked about emotionally abusive or manipulative relationships, I just want to say it that if there's anyone listening that has a little glimmer of thinking, like, I think I'm being abused in a relationship, I just want to. I've known enough women <laughs> that I think can relate to some of these dynamics that I just want to encourage any listeners to talk to somebody about it and get help if you feel like you are in a relationship that is, um, again, that's abusive, whether it's physical or sexual or emotional, that um, you should trust yourself and trust your intuition 
and don't let it go on longer. Get help. There are resources. There are hotlines. There are books to read. Um, talk to a trusted person, and and um, things can get better. So have courage and and try to get help. So I think that's what I would like to say at the end. Um, and then again, Shannon, thank you so much. You are so smart oh. and so insightful. <laughs> and I just, I love chatting with you. I love having any reason to talk, to talk with you and talking about literature is like an extra bonus and such a joy. So thanks so much for spending the time. Oh, Shannon. well, thanks for having me. I really, uh, thanks for giving me the excuse to read this again. And it was really fun to talk to you about it. Thanks. Our next episode is another work of fiction from the 19th century, the iconic novella The Awakening by Kate Chopin. I'd heard of this book for years. Of course, its title is super evocative, and it sounds like it should be relevant to some of the themes we're discussing on the podcast. But reading it, I really honestly couldn't believe it was written in 1899. It felt so current and so relatable. And I highly recommend buying a copy and uh, really reading the whole thing this week if you can. My copy cost like $3.99. And it was just actually a really great story. It's a really great book. So well written. Um, in addition to being an important work of, you know, studying the woman's mind and um, being an important work on a reading list of women's history. It's just honestly a fun, interesting um and really engaging book to read. So see if you can get a copy of Kate Chopin's The Awakening, and then join us for the discussion next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs>